0: Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. You know, when you think about the greatest leaders and heroes of world history, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Constantine maybe, Joan of Arc, Charlemagne, Napoleon, Richard the Lionhearted, George Washington, whatever name you want to add to that list, when you think about all of those great leaders and compare them in uh, part or in whole against Christ, it is beyond comparison. It is uh, like, like weighing a grain of sand against Mount Everest. Really, when you think about the impact of any of those individuals versus that of our Savior. In the words of James Francis, he says, Jesus never wrote a book. He never held office. He never had a family. He never owned a home. He never went to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompanies greatness, never conquered a nation or defeated an army. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 years old when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was nailed on a cross between two thieves. When he died, he was laid in a tomb, borrowed from a friend out of pity. Yet 20 centuries have come and gone, and today Jesus stands as the central figure of the human race. I'm far within the mark, he says, when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on earth as has this one solitary life. It's safe to say there has never been an important, more important life, nor an important, more important man. Safe to say there's never been a more important issue than your understanding of Jesus Christ. It is of the utmost importance that you understand this man who who played such a central role in human history and he plays such a central role in your history. Or maybe we should say he plays such a central role in your eternity. More than any other person Whoever lived on the face of this earth, he is central to everything that we are as humans and he is central to everything that you are. How you think about Jesus Christ, how you respond to him determines the trajectory not only of your life but of your eternity. And a misunderstanding of that will have grave consequences when you face divine judgment. So it's critical that we understand the key question about Christ, and we can understand why in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus raises this question, the question of his identity, or in in this particular context, the question of the identity of the Messiah as it has bearing on Christ, That's really what the issue is here at the end of Matthew chapter 22. It's a question that Jesus raises about the Messiah, the son of David, who was the Christ. He raises this issue because it is the critical step in understanding the major issue of who he is. And it happens in the course of a series of questions that have been happening throughout the day here throughout Matthew chapter 21 and chapter 22, a day of controversy and question in the life of Christ. We have a number of questions that have been posed to him, but now he raises the question to end all questions, the question that uh, really provides an answer that answers all answers, the question that every person must face, the question of who is the Christ and who is Jesus. And to do that, he raises the issue of the Old Testament, particularly uh, the issue of King David and one of his psalms, uh, one of the key psalms in all of the psalms, one of the psalms that would have been recognized by all Jewish scholars, all Jewish people, as central to the discussion of the Messiah. Listen to what Jesus says, beginning in Matthew 22 and verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any questions anymore. Now, Jesus is raising the critical question of the day, the critical question of his day, his final day of public ministry, his day when he had entered into the temple and had been confronted and had been challenged over and over again by all kinds of questions by these scribes, by these Pharisees and Sadducees and even the Herodians. But among all of their questions, he raises the question that is, in, that is central to really everything, the question that rises above all questions and, as I said, the question that ends all questions. And as we look at it this morning, we can, uh, we can understand its importance and its centrality by breaking it down into its maybe constituent parts, or at least this passage into its constituent parts, beginning in verse 42 with this definitive question, this question that he focuses on, that doesn't have to do with any of the topics that they've raised. You remember they've come to him and they've asked him all kinds of questions that were all intended to trip him up in some way. They wanted to humiliate him or in some ways expose him for what they thought was uh, the imposter that he was or to raise some sort of uh, controversy in his teaching and stir up some sort of criticism among the people. And to do that, they had raised questions about the resurrection and marriage in heaven or questions about taxes and, and the a Jewish relationship to the government or, or all kinds of speculative questions about various topics of theology. But he raises a question that focuses on the central issue of the Messiah or what we might call the question of Christology, the issue of who is the Christ? Christ, the word itself, comes from the Greek word Christos, which is, a, which is a Greek form of the Jewish word Messiah. So whether you're using the word Christ or using the word Messiah, you're talking about the same person. You're talking about the promised coming deliverer for Israel. And this is the question by Jesus in contrast to all their other questions. The monumental question, the defining question. But it was the question that they couldn't answer, or at least they didn't want to answer. In fact, that's how the chapter ends. No one wanted to answer his question. But that's not a luxury that they had, and it's not a luxury that you have. It's not a luxury that anybody in mankind has. You can put off the question. You can delay the question. But eventually, you must answer this question if you won't answer it today before us, before this congregation and before me, if you won't answer it tonight in the quietness of your own room, if you won't answer it before any other people, you will eventually answer this question when you stand before God. You must answer this question. Who is the Messiah? It's the question that demands an answer. Demands an answer. And it's been the question that people have grappled with throughout all the centuries. It's been the question that people have answered and in many cases answered wrongly throughout all the centuries. It is the dividing question not only of all mankind, the dividing question of all religions. Because all world religions, all cults, all false faiths, they all have this in common. They all get this question wrong. They all answer this question as it relates to Christ in the wrong way. It doesn't matter whether it is the Jews who rejected any notion of the deity of their Messiah. It also is the question that's answered wrongly by the Muslims and the Hindus and the Buddhists, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Christian scientists, the Scientologists, the Christadelphians, or whoever it might be. They all answer the question And they all answer it wrong. And that is the thing that unites them all together. They all unite together in defying the deity of Christ. They may have some favorable view of him. They can't deny that he was a consequential historical figure. They might even acknowledge that he was wise and he was devout and he was compassionate and maybe that he was sacrificial in some way. But in the end, they refused to acknowledge that he was in any way divine, not in the sense of the God of the universe. He might have had some spark of deity. He might have been in some sense some God in a pantheon of gods. But that was all he was. To mark him off as the God of all the universe is a line too far for them. This has always been the central plank in Satan's agenda. Whether it is by false religion or whether it is by no religion, whether it is by some deviant form of faith or whether it is by atheism, this has always been the central plank of his agenda to convince you that Jesus is not God. Or at least to get you to not bother answering the question. This is where the battle lines are drawn. This is where all of the theologians and spiritual leaders have focused their attention and their debate throughout all the years. This is the issue, as I said, that divides not only mankind, but all of history. And so Jesus is raising this question with them. And interestingly... He does it from the Old Testament. He takes them to the Old Testament to address this issue of the nature of the Messiah. Or, as I said, to raise the issue of what we would call Christology, the the study of the Messiah, the study of the Christ. And particularly the issue of the deity of Christ, Many people, whenever they think about the deity of Christ, they think about issues of, of uh, the Trinity, which is a Christian doctrine, the idea that God is one and has three personalities, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so when we talk about God the Son, we talk about the deity of the second person of the Trinity. Everyone assumes that that is a Christian doctrine and therefore a New Testament doctrine, something that you only find in the New Testament or something that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. But the reality is that the deity of Christ is spoken about many times in the Old Testament. And so Jesus takes these men to a a, a, a body of, of literature, a text that they would have had tremendous respect for. He takes them to the Hebrew Scriptures and particularly to one of their ancient kings, to King David, in one of his central Psalms. And he asks them this question, what do you think about the Christ, whose son is he? And so they answer him. But their answer Whatever it might be, however they might read it, is ultimately insufficient, which kind of raises the second component here. It's not only the definitive question that Jesus asked, but it is their deficient answer that helps us understand the importance of this passage. Because when they are confronted with this question, their response is the conventional response. It is obvious to them based on their traditions and based on their Uh, literature and based on their doctrines, it's obvious that the Messiah is simply David's son. And in saying that, they are convinced that the Messiah, for all of his greatness, for all of his expected works, for all that he is supposed to accomplish, they're convinced that the Messiah is going to be essentially no more than a man. He's going to be just the son of David, which was a way of saying he's a descendant of David. That is what they mean by son of David. When uh, we talk about the Messiah, when they identify him as David's son, they're talking about the fact that he's going to be a physical heir in David's line. And all of that arises out of a specific promise. that was established in the Old Testament, a promise that was made to David. Or as we say sometimes, a covenant that was made with David. God at various points and various times throughout the Old Testament made key promises or key uh, covenants. Or we might even say key contracts with individuals and people. And these covenants become the pillars or the backbone on which the entire Old Testament hangs. One of them, of course, was made with Noah. Noah when God made a covenant with Noah never to destroy the earth again by flood. Another one is made with Abraham when God promised to give Abraham a physical descendant and through that descendant all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And one of those covenants was made with David when God promised that he would establish David's son on David's throne, and he would give him a kingdom that lasts forever. It comes to us in Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. He says to David, "'When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, "'I'll raise up your offspring after you, who will come from your body, "'and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, "'and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever.'" Now, this promise was given to David, and it was given unconditionally. There was nothing David was going going to do that was going to fulfill this. He wasn't going to uh, achieve God's favor in some way. This was just a unilateral promise God was going to do this. Now, of course, David had many sons. He had unfortunately many wives, and they gave birth to a number of sons Absalom, Solomon, and others. And yet Jews always understood that this promise was fulfilled not through any of those sons. Partly because while they did in fact uh, take up, or I should say Solomon at least, in fact did take up David's throne and he reigned over a kingdom that was uh, in the Davidic line, his kingdom was not everlasting. It wasn't an eternal kingdom. And so even after the death of Solomon, Jews continued to look for a coming promised uh, uh, messianic king, someone who would be a son of David. And it's repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament. They are celebrating it again and again. Psalm 89, one of those passages that five or six times calls for the arrival of the coming Messiah or Amos 9-11 many years after the death of Solomon the prophet Amos says in that day I'll raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches and I'll raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in days of old. And you could multiply these kinds of uh, of promises or these these kinds of words of encouragement again and again. Throughout the Old Testament, they were constantly looking for someone who would be born in the line of David and would come and fulfill the promise that was given to David. And they all believed it. And they all believed that this promise was yet to be fulfilled. Now, Jesus, of course, was born in the lineage of David. We, we know that because Matthew tells us that at the big, very beginning of the book of Matthew. He opens up Matthew chapter 1 in the first few verses, the first 17 verses, with a detailed genealogy of Jesus showing that his lineage through his father, his adopted father, Joseph, his legal father, his lineage through his adopted father, Joseph, went back through to the line of David. And we also know from Luke chapter 3 that his lineage through his birth mother, Mary, also went back to the line of David. So no matter how you traced it, whether through his, the line of Joseph or through the line of Mary, Jesus had the credentials, the legal credentials, to make a claim of Messiahship. And in fact, When Jesus began to do his public ministry, this apparently was a known fact that he was a descendant of David. And because of that, as he began to carry out his ministry and as he began to teach and most particularly as he began to work his powerful miracles, people started to recognize him as David's son. At one point he was ministering up in Galilee and a blind man along the road heard him passing by and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people tried to quiet the uh, blind man and yet he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Later on, when Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem and he passes through Jericho, once again, some blind men, this time uh, multiple blind men along the road, hear him coming and they do the same thing. They cry out, Son of David, have mercy on us. They knew somehow that Jesus was of the line of David. Word had gotten out that he had that legal credential. They knew and they recognized the the power not only of his works but the authority of his teaching and people began to speculate. He might actually be the the fulfillment of this promise. Even when Jesus entered in Jerusalem a few days earlier, remember riding on the colt of a donkey, people were laying down their coats as some sort of royal blanket and they were crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. So there was a rising recognition of his, his, uh, at least, legal status, his legal credentials as a potential messianic figure. This is, in fact, one of the things that caused the Jewish leadership to respond to him so negatively. They didn't like it when people ascribed this title because to call someone the son of david wasn't just a way of recognizing his his legal lineage it was in fact a title ascribing to him messianic honor when someone used that title it was specifically to ascribe to them the potential of being a messianic figure so the jewish leadership didn't like this whenever they Use that title of Jesus, and consequently, they always were trying to get people to quiet down or to reject that idea. And even in one case, asking Jesus to rebuke his own followers who were calling that name out to him. See, they thought that that was too great a title for Jesus. They 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 thought that that was too great an honor. To be ascribed to him. But the truth is, it wasn't too great. In fact, if anything, it wasn't great enough. It wasn't great enough just to call him the son of David. That answer, even calling him the Messiah, that answer in itself, while accurate, was inadequate. Because most of them, when they thought about the Messiah, they thought about him only as a man. Which is, which is really at the heart of this, and it's our third sort of component to this. Uh, Jesus poses the decisive question. They give their deficient answer. And then Jesus focuses in, in verse 43, on the decisive truth. If they are if they're answering that the Messiah is indeed the son of David. How, he says, how is it that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? He, he's he's referencing here obviously Psalm 110 and uh saying that David who wrote this, wrote it in the Spirit, that is to say he wrote it under the inspiration of God. These are David's words, but because David was inspired by the Spirit as he wrote them, like all the rest of the biblical writers, when he wrote, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote the words of God. God superintended so that through all of David's own personality all of David's own will all of David's own decisions this was in other words he was fully the words of David but because of God's superintending work these were also the words of God it's just another way of saying how is it that the scripture the authoritative scripture says this that he is David's Lord And of course, he's focusing in on these particular words in Psalm 110, verse 1, where in the context of this, David refers to him as my Lord. He quotes here, the Lord said to my Lord, really just driving home this point from the the words of David himself. Now, to understand this maybe a little bit better it might be helpful to point out that in the uh, in the psalm itself the word lord is two different words the word lord first of all when he says the lord uh, that word is yahweh which is the divine name the name of the true god the name that distinguishes God from all the other so-called gods. It is the name that distinguishes him from Baal, the name that distinguishes him from Molech, the name that distinguishes him from Allah, the name that distinguishes him from all the fake and false gods that have ever been proposed. This is the divine name. So he's talking about the God of the universe, the Lord, who said... To my Lord. Now here he uses a different word for Lord. It is the word Adonai, which is a more common word for Lord. It is ascribed to, uh, to uh, various uh, people. You might sometimes refer to a king as your Lord. Or if you're a slave, you might refer to your master as your Lord. But one thing that you never did was refer to your child as your Lord. That, that is unnatural. People didn't call their children Lord. You don't call your son Lord because that's not the way honor and respect generally travel travel. The word carries this idea of superiority, and so you wouldn't use that terminology to reference your child. Honor and respect normally travel from younger to older. And so this is the issue that Jesus is highlighting for them. How is it that David is referring to what, in this case, is recognized by everyone to be the Messiah? How is it that he's calling him Lord? And by the way, this is, by, as, as I said, everyone recognizes this to be a messianic prophecy because he talks about the Lord sitting at the right hand of God until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. And he goes on to talk about the triumph of this coming Lord and how he was going to bring about prosperity for Israel. All of this is messianic terminology. All of this was recognized by everyone to refer to the Messiah. This is what the Messiah was going to do. He was going to come and he's going to establish a kingdom and he was going to reign over that kingdom until every person, every group was brought into submission to him. And that's symbolized by this putting them under his feet as a footstool that that is a symbolic gesture that many times kings would do to demonstrate their superiority their power their victory over their opponents in fact in Joshua 10 this happened with five Amorite kings when Joshua defeated the Amorites he summoned all the men of Israel and Joshua Ten twenty four, and he said to the chief men of war who had gone out with him, "Come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings." Then they came near and put their feet on the necks of the kings. So this is an image about the messianic kingdom and who this, uh, what this Messiah was going to do. He was going to reign in his kingdom until he brought everyone into submission. Now, this had not happened yet. It still has not happened, as a matter of fact. This is something that is still awaiting the future for Jesus. Paul talks about it, how in the resurrection, this would be finally fulfilled through Christ. He says in First Corinthians fifteen twenty two, "...as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then those who are his at his coming." In other words, uh, Christ was the first one to be made alive, referring to the, the resurrection of Christ's body. And just like Christ was resurrected, everyone who belongs to Christ will be resurrected at the second coming of Christ. Verse 24 of 1 Corinthians, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So Paul is saying that this is still yet something to be fulfilled in the messianic Kingdom. When Christ returns, when he establishes his messianic kingdom, every person, whether they are uh, willing or unwilling, will come to heal before Christ. Some of them willingly will taste the benefits of Christ through his redeeming work and his grace, and, and they will be a part of the resurrected people in his kingdom. Others, in their defiance of him, will find themselves in submission under his feet whatever it is everyone recognized that the messianic kingdom was going to exercise this kind of authority and and it was going to come from the messianic king who is sitting at the right hand of god that that was a unique position a position that wasn't given to any other person. In fact, Hebrews one thirteen asks this question, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make a footstool for your feet? Your a foot, uh, your enemies, a footstool for your feet. In other words, this is a, an exalted position at the right hand of God that wouldn't even be given to the angels. This was a messianic prophecy. So in speaking of the Messiah, it's obvious that he would be given the blessing and the grace of God. It's obvious that he would have the help of God. But what's astounding in this is that he's exalted to the right hand of God. But not only that, that he is called in all of this, the Lord. Not just any master. He's called the Lord of David, his father. Jesus is essentially saying to them, I've been among you for three years. I've been doing all of these works that I've been doing. My credentials are established. I have healed the sick. I have fed the hungry. I've multiplied food. I walked on water and stilled the storms. I've taught with authority and power and insight. I've worked all of these miracles and of course he will go on to work the greatest of miracles which is rising from the dead. Romans chapter 1 says he's proclaimed to be the son of God with authority by the resurrection from the dead. He's done all of these things, and now, having established clearly His divine nature by everything that He's done, He's also showing them that what He claims isn't even anything profoundly different than what their own Hebrew Scripture had claimed, that the Messiah would come among them and that He would be more than just the son of David this is a question that they needed to grapple with what is the nature of their Messiah is he just the son of David or is he more and why does David call him Lord it's a question that all men need to face If Jesus was just a man, first of all, how did he rise from the dead? If Jesus was just a man, why do all of these men across all of these centuries, Old Testament, New Testament, why do they all speak about him in terms of deity? If Jesus was just a man and a good man, why did he refer to himself as God? Well, it's because he is God. He was a man. He was born of a virgin. He was born among us, Emmanuel, walking among us so that he could suffer the things that we suffer and be a sympathetic high priest. And also so that he could stand in our place to take the wrath of God but the most important thing is not that he's a man it's that he's a God that he is God I should say he has all the qualities of God omnipotence omniscience he is sinless perfect he was the one who provided food he was the one who healed the sick he was the one who raised the dead he was also the one who forgave sin he's the one who will judge this this was the issue that they needed to face unfortunately they wouldn't as verse 46 says no one answered him a word they weren't able to. In fact, they didn't want to. They didn't, they didn't even want to answer the question. You know, it's interesting after this point, uh, up until the time of Christ, when we look at all ancient uh, Jewish writings in reference to Psalm 110, everyone spoke about Psalm 110 as a messianic prophecy. It was all, all recognized by ancient Jewish writings as a messianic prophecy. After this point, after the publishing of the New Testament and the publishing of this interaction, something happened in Jewish literature. They changed. After the time of Christ, they all began to talk about Psalm 110, not as a, not as a reference to the Messiah, but maybe a reference to Abraham, possibly a, a reference to Melchizedek maybe. Some people even say it was a reference to Judas Maccabeus, who was a, a, an ancient uh, a Jewish uh, hero, historical figure. But they tried to suppress the truth that this was talking about the Messiah. Why? Because the reality of what the psalm actually says was too clear for them to have to grapple with. So rather than grappling with the truth or rather than answering the question, they just tried to change the subject. They just tried to dodge the question. They didn't want to deal with the reality and the implications of what Jesus was confronting them with here. How is it that David calls his son Lord? It's an impossible dilemma unless you're willing to say that the Messiah, that the Messiah is the son of God. They didn't want to answer him, but the reality is, as I said, they don't have that luxury. You don't have that luxury. You might hear that question today and you might say, well, that's interesting I've always found Jesus to be interesting. I've always thought he was a good guy. I always admired him. I admire people that follow him and worship him. I admire Christianity maybe in broad ways and some good things that it does. I have respect for all of that stuff. You could have all those kinds of thoughts in your mind but still not answer this question. And you might fool yourself into thinking that you don't have to answer this question. But you do. You may not answer it now, but you will answer it. So you may as well give it some thought. You may as well give it some thought. Why does David so many hundreds of years, a thousand years, in fact, before the time of Christ, why does he call the Messiah Lord? Why does he call his son Lord? And what does that mean for Christ? What does that mean for Christ? You know, later on in Luke chapter 22, they arrest Jesus and they bring him before the Sanhedrin. It's actually found over in Luke 22, verse 66. Luke 22, verse 66. The day came, they assembled the elders, the people together, and both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said to him, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But, From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of of the power of God. You know, this is really, really sad, these men who somehow believe that they're going to escape this question. It's really, really sad for you if you think you're going to escape this question. If you think that somehow you can leave here and go on with your life and live it out and pursue whatever you're going to pursue and never really be confronted with this. This is the most consequential question you'll ever have to answer. And the answer to this question is the ultimate answer to every question. It is the answer that gives the answer for all the answers that you're seeking. It's the question on which all the human race has hinged. It's the question on which your life will hinge. And most importantly, it's the question on which your eternity will hinge. Who is the Christ? He is Jesus, the Son of God. Father, we are grateful for the clarity of our Savior. He he presents this in such an undeniably clear way, such that we cannot escape it. No man, no woman ever could. I pray for those who are here today that they not fool themselves into thinking that they should try. But I pray that today they would answer that question today they would answer the question who is the Christ and I pray that they would answer it from the truth of Jesus Christ having answered it Lord we pray that they would receive you as not only the son of David but as the son of God and as many as receive him you give the right to become the children of God thank you for that O Lord Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us and that you've allowed us to know you in truth. We pray in Christ's name, amen.